so that was, that was really cool. If you have a Bible today, thanks a lot, Benjamin. If you'll turn to John chapter 15, if you're visiting with us, we welcome you. If it's your first time here, we'd love to help you in any way we can, especially in your relationship with the Lord. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers have plenty of extras. We're going through the Gospel of St. John right now. If you want to join with us to read through the Gospel of John. Last week in John chapter 15, we saw that in this final night that Jesus was about to be crucified, he talked about the disciples bearing fruit. He said, I'm sending you to bear fruit. And I want to remind you what that means. It's character change. When you become a Christian, God changes our heart, and we begin to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Secondly, though, fruit involves conduct. It's the change in our behavior. Paul said, I pray that you will bear the fruit of righteousness. When, when by God's grace, we're learning to do what's right, and we do good. Paul prayed that we would be fruitful in good works. And then third, we said that fruit involves converts, that God is calling all of us to try to bring people to Christ. And so through our prayers and witness, you don't have to lead them to Christ, but be involved in seeing them come to the Lord. And a great example of fruit is to see the children. I mean, that, that's a priority here. We really want to encourage you. I've said this before. We have about 200 children that come to our church each Sunday. And I want you to pray for them and pray for the parents and parents, I want to remind you, I've mentioned this before. I'm actually reading it again, I think for the third time. If you haven't read this book and you're, you're raising kids, it's called Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp, Shepherding a Child's Heart. My wife asked me the other day, why are you reading that? Our kids are raised. And I'm like, I got grandkids. I'm on the next round. And it's really a great book to talk about engaging your children with the gospel. But pray for all of our parents and grandparents because most children... People come to Christ before they're 18, so this is a primary time to love them, to pray for them, to try to be an example to them. If, even if you don't have children or if you've already raised your children, pray for marriages, parents, family, that many, many more children will come to the Lord. So let's pray together and let's pray for our children, and then we'll look at God's Word. Thank you so much, Father, for the gift of children. They are indeed a gift from the Lord. And we know that there are some here who would love to have children and can't, and we pray that you would comfort and encourage their hearts. We pray for those who have lost children, that you will give them enormous peace and strength. For all who have children and grandchildren, we pray that we can invest in them, loving them and modeling Christ to them. And Lord, we pray that you will bless our children's workers. We thank God for them. Thank you for the new building that we're planning to have that we can minister to more children. We pray for Vacation Bible School coming up, Lord, and even as we saw the children memorize scripture, may we be encouraged and reminded that that's part of our parental mission, that the word of God is richly dwelling in us and in our children. So give us strength toward that end, and for those whose children are wayward or indifferent to spiritual things, Lord, help them not to give up hope, but just to keep loving and praying and leading them towards the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, after talking about bearing fruit, we're going to find that the next thing Jesus discusses is he's going to announce to the disciples their mission. But then no sooner does he tell them their mission, he says, but there's going to be coming heat. There's going to be opposition to that mission. But then he says, you're going to have the Spirit's help. 
in that mission. But then he says, it's going to get worse. And so I want to give you hope in your mission. So let's start by talking about the disciples' mission. While Jesus was on earth, he said, I came to bear witness to the truth. So Jesus comes down to earth and he says, look, here's the way it is. I'm God. I created the world, and this world is evil. And I have come into this world not to judge the world, but to save the world. But Jesus said in the Gospel of John chapter 7, this is why the world hates me, because I bear witness that it's evil. But now Jesus is transferring the torch, and he's saying, now listen, I'm leaving, so here's your mission. If you look with me in verse 27, he says, God's going to send the Spirit, and you will bear witness also. You will bear witness. So in seed form, he's beginning to say, look, this is what your mission is going to look like. To bear witness is to, the original word meant to attest to something on the basis of personal knowledge. You could be a witness of an accident. But to bear witness of Christ is to have, first of all, experienced the gospel and then to express the gospel to other people. Not long after this, when Jesus came out of the grave, he said to the disciples in Luke 24, it's written in the Bible that the Christ should suffer for our sins and rise again on the third day. And then he says, repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name, beginning here in Jerusalem. Then he says, and you're witnesses of these things. So as a church and as Christians, we, we need to constantly rehearse our mission. Our mission is to bear witness to Christ. It's to be forgiven followers who are trying to become like him and we're sharing that message with other people. Now, it doesn't mean we have to go around preaching to everybody we see and hitting them with a Bible and telling them to repent, you're going to hell. But we're constantly engaging with this world, telling them that Christ came, that there's judgment coming, and that there's forgiveness if they will come to the Lord. So Jesus has already said, the world hates me. But now he's going to tell the disciples, they're going to hate you also. So this first point I've called the coming heat because Jesus is going to explain the world's opposition to our mission. And we'll start in verses 17 through 21. Jesus says, this is my commandment to you that you love one another. But then he says, if the world hates you, and they will, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A slave's not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they don't know the one who sent me. So let's talk about this coming heat. The first thing we need to do here, and this is important, is that we define what he means by the world. Sometimes we throw these terms around and you really need to learn them as a Christian. Okay, what do we mean when the Bible talks about the world? For example, the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's just the people. But oftentimes when the Bible speaks of the world, it gives it a very negative description like this. Romans 12.2 says, don't be conformed to this world. James chapter 4 says, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And in 1 John 2.15, John says, don't love this world nor the things that are in this world. If you love this world, the love of the Father is not in you. This world is passing away, but if you do the will of God, you'll live forever. So here's what the world is. 
The world is this evil mindset or system that's hostile to God and leaves God out. Now, everyone is born as a part of the world, so we think in this mindset of hostility and rebellion against God. It's very subtle, though. It doesn't mean everyone's raising their fist to God, but it's this mindset that people have that, now, carefully think about this. They're in, they're in rebellion, but they're leaving God out, okay? So everyone's born in this world. We think like the world. We're a part of this world. You don't have anything different until you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, Jesus says, now you have come out of the world. But coming out of the world doesn't mean that we've moved our, our address. It means we've been changed and we now renounce our allegiance to this world. This is not my home. This is not my people. This is not my mindset. My allegiance is to Christ and I'm going to another world, the coming world, the kingdom of God. But in the meantime, I have to learn how to navigate in this world because the people around me think a certain way. They value certain things and they leave God out. And so the Bible says, I've chosen you out of this world. So, so don't be conformed to this world just because everybody else thinks this way. If the Bible says something different, don't think like them. Don't act like them. Don't live for stuff and sex and possessions. The Bible says all the things in this world are passing away. And don't be a friend of this world. Just, just totally disengaged from God. Now, all of us have to wrestle with that. Okay? We can't just go, oh, those people who go out and do terrible things. They, they're in the world. We all are exposed and living around unbelievers all the time. So even when yesterday I'm at, at, at the a restaurant with my wife and my brother and sister-in-law. And um, the waitress goes, boy, Mother Nature's been giving us some warm weather, but she's coming with a vengeance. You see, that's the world, right? Where, where's God? He just got thrown under the table. He, God's not doing the weather. Mother Nature is. But on and on it goes. And people live day after day, ignoring God, just, just doing their thing. And they're like, hey, man. God's good. I don't bother him. He doesn't bother me. No, they're in rebellion and hostility, and one day God's wrath is going to come on them because we weren't created to do our thing. The Bible says we were created to worship and serve God, and every day that we don't do that, we're accruing a coming judgment. So Jesus has told the disciples, now, I've chosen you out of the world. He said back in chapter 6 or chapter 15, I chose you to go and bear fruit in this world. But now he's telling them that the world's going to be in opposition. And here's why. He says, the world's going to hate you, but don't take it personal. It hates me. It's not you. It's me that they hate. And since you remind them of me, they're going to hate you. And it makes sense when you think about it because misery loves company. So the world, even though they act like, oh, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in hell, Romans chapter 1 says they do know in their heart that there is a God. They do know that they are without excuse. And the end of Romans 1 says they know that they deserve the judgment of God, but they heartily approve those who rebel against God. So this is what people will often say. They'll go, hey, I became a Christian, and so I stopped living like and with the world, and I, I, I came out from among them to be different, and I lost a lot of friends. And I said, no, you didn't. These weren't your friends. These were your sin companions. Because if they were your friends, why do they care if you follow Christ? 
right? Hey, good for you. I'm glad that's working for you. But what happens is, is when we come out and we're separate from them, we remind them of their coming judgment, and that makes them hostile. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians, like, like a fragrance of an aroma, he says, we're a fragrance of Christ. To those who are perishing, we're a fragrance of death. We remind them of coming judgment. To those who are being saved, we're a fragrance of life. We remind them that Christ can give us life. That's why Jesus says, if they take your words, they took my words. So if people are attracted to your Christianity, that's the Lord drawing them. If they're hostile to your Christianity, don't take it personal. Now, what's ironic, Jesus says, they persecuted me and they will persecute you. But we're too clever for that because we're American Christians. We've found a, a loophole. We just say, hey, man, I witness by my life. I don't talk about Jesus. I just witness by my life. And nobody's mad at me. Everybody likes me. And I'm going, really? How about if Jesus took that approach? He says, I'm not going to tell anybody that what they do is wrong. You know, I'm not going to talk about evil because I want everybody to like me. So if we make a stand and we say, hey, sex before marriage, it's, we're not saying it. God said it in the Bible. That's sin. It brings God's wrath. If we say, hey, we're not going to, to sit here and say, hey, the LGBT, hey, whatever, let everybody do their own thing. You know, it's all good. We're going to say, hey, listen, we're trying to follow Christ. And if the Bible says something is sin, then we're engaging with the Bible. We're going to agree with Christ. And when you talk to people about Christ, at some point you have to talk about sin. And when you start making a stand against sin, you're going to find that people won't like you. The Bible says all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. So I just need to get that down. Jesus says there's heat coming. Now, he's now going to add something. He's going to say not only is the world in opposition... So you've got to navigate that. You can't just hide your Christianity from the people you work with or your neighbors. But just understand, hey, they don't get it. They're lost. Pray for them. Love them. But, but speak about Christ in hopes that some of them will come out from the world. But then he says, those who have heard my words have a greater condemnation. The whole world's in opposition, but those who oppose me and have heard my words, their condemnation is even greater Look with me in 22 through 25, and then I'll try to explain it. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, now who's them? This would be the people in this world, but particularly the ones that heard and saw his miracles, the, the people in the Holy Land area, the Jews and some of the Gentiles who were right there. He says, if I hadn't spoken to them, they would, have not, they would not have sin. Now, I'm going to explain that. It doesn't mean they're not sinners. But he says, now they have no excuse for their sin. And what he's going to teach us here is there's a greater condemnation. If you hear the Bible, if you experience some of the things of Christianity, your judgment is going to be greater if you reject it. Jesus says, he who hates me hates my father also. And if I hadn't done among them the works, these miracles, which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen me and hated my father as well. Now, I want to start with this. The Bible's very clear that everyone has sin and is a sinner, okay? 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 says, if you say you have not sinned or you say that you don't have sin, you don't have a sin nature, you're a liar. You've made God a liar. The truth is not in you. So the Bible's very clear. We're all sinners. We've all broken God's laws. 
but there are degrees of sin. So when Jesus is saying here they would not have sin, he's not saying they're not sinners, they're innocent. But there's a relativity to the degrees of sin, meaning this. The more you hear and see of God's revelation, the greater your condemnation. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11 to, to the people that saw his miracles, but they still wouldn't repent. He said, woe to you. If the people in Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the same miracles, they would have repented. So therefore, you will have a greater condemnation than them. Now, I'm going to leave it at that. I don't know what that means. I don't know that the Bible means there are degrees of hell. It doesn't mean that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are going to get a second chance. We know from Scripture that they went to hell. But one thing I will say, if you're here today and you're hearing the Bible and you still reject Christ, you're going to have a greater condemnation. So if you want to just get up and go, I'm getting out of here. I don't want to pile up my condemnation. Go. I pray you won't, though. But instead go, all right, so if everyone's without excuse, they all need to hear the scriptures. And I understand that it's because of their hostility to God. Verse 25, they've done this that the word might be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. You go, all right, I see it. Jesus is go on, he's going to go on and he's going to drop in there the idea, but hey, you're still on a mission. In the, war, in the midst of this heat, I'm going to tell you, you're still on a mission, but then he says, I want to explain to you what this opposition is going to look like. So this is all still under that same subject, the coming heat. So he says, when the helper comes, verse 26, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. So here's your mission. When I die for sinners and rise again, you're going to go out and start telling people that. And the Holy Spirit's going to help you. You're going to bear witness. Now, he'll come back and develop that. But I, I want to point out something. Some of you have, are, are growing and you're learning theology, doctrine. The Bible talks about being grounded in doctrine. And we have a number of means of doing that. We have the gateway courses. For those of you that are still like, what is this? How can I learn more? Just email us or let us know. We want you to grow in doctrine. But one of the doctrines of the Christian faith is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And there are a number of things that we learn about the Holy Spirit. This particular verse 26 is interesting because it says, he proceeds from the Father. And in the history of the church, we look back and say, hey, what does the church teach about the Holy Spirit, from the Bible. And there was a, a debate in the early church about this phrase, he proceeds, and, it, and it, was, it revolved around what's called the procession of the Holy Spirit. Who does he proceed from, the Father or Jesus? And what does that mean, that he proceeds from the Father? And so you can look up in theology books the procession of the Spirit and some of the, 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 the deeper things that they discussed in this. But one thing that it doesn't mean is that the Holy Spirit is less God or less equal to the Father or the Spirit. Okay, so we just need to remind ourselves there's one God who exists in three equal eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but they each have a different role. And so in God's plan, it was to send the Holy Spirit in a new way at Pentecost, after Christ rose, to do a work in this world, but this does not diminish his deity or his personality. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses say the Holy Spirit's not a person, it's just a force, you're like, no, the Bible teaches he's a person. 
He has intellect. He thinks. He prays. He grieves. He has a will. And he has work through us. But Jesus is going to develop and he's going to say, let me explain what this opposition is going to look like. Verse 1. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. And we want to talk about what does this mean? They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Now that word outcast was a word, it's a formal expulsion from the synagogue. This is like, this is excommunication. If you got kicked out of the synagogue, you were kicked out of society, socially. So this was no small thing like, oh, I can't go to that gym anymore. Like, pretty much everyone's going to hate you. They won't hire you. They won't sell to you. Your family will disown you. So this is a big deal. Not only will they make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. And you're like, are these people mad? You're like, well, no, that's exactly what Paul did, right? Paul went around killing Christians, but he thought that's what God wanted because they're blaspheming against God. Isn't that weird to think there would be people who would kill people in the name of God? Oh, wait. It's happening all the time, right? Not so much from Jews now, but from radical Muslims who really believe, you know, eradicate these, these hostile people and, 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 and God will be pleased with you. So... Jesus teaches us something very interesting here, and that is our greatest concern should not be death. Look at verse 4. These things have I spoken to you that when their hour comes, you remember that I told you them. And I didn't tell you at the beginning because I was with you. Now, first you're like, oh, so now you tell me. I've been with you three and a half years, and now you're like, hey, did you read the fine print? Because you thought you were going to sit with me on 12 thrones and reign in the kingdom. You are. However, before then, it's going to get really nasty. And there's going to be a lot of people that will want to kill you and think they're serving God. But when Jesus says in verse 1, these things I told you that you may kept from stumbling, he's not here most concerned about their death. He's most concerned about their defection. Because to stumble in this respect is to turn away from Christ permanently. This is what the Bible calls apostasy. So when John the Baptist was having his doubts about Christ, Jesus said, go and tell John in prison that, hey, the, 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 the deaf hear, the blind see. Blessed are those who don't stumble. So Jesus is like, look, when the persecution comes, what I don't want you to do is renounce your Christianity. And this is a real and present danger that people who act like Christians, call themselves Christians, have been baptized as Christians, sometimes defect from the faith. They go, I don't believe that anymore. I'm done with that. And they go back to the world. And we're all left going, what just happened? And so people take different views as to what just happened. There are numerous Christians who go, well, what just happened is they lost their salvation. And I'm going, that's impossible. How can someone lose their salvation? The Bible says in Romans 8, everyone whom God justified, he glorified. Jesus said, I don't lose any of my own. So it's not that they lost their salvation, but when people permanently renounce their Christianity they have evidence that they never had salvation. 
In other words, while it looks like, oh, they, they, they turned their back on Christianity and they, they lost their salvation, they weren't Christians. They looked like it. They smelled like it. They acted like it. They even did miracles like it. But just like Judas, they were never Christians. And so in 1 John chapter 2, when John later wrote his epistle, he was, he was wrestling with the fact that even some of their teachers had defected from Christianity. They were denying the major truths of the Bible. And so, so John said this in 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were never of us. Because if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out to demonstrate that they were never of us. So there's a couple things that we need to process here. First of all, if you know someone who renounces Christianity or is in the verge of renouncing their Christianity, even though you're pretty sure they're saved, don't assume that, oh, they're definitely saved. Because saved people don't renounce and permanently abandon the faith. But rather, there's this real present possibility that someone we thought was a Christian is not, whether it's your spouse, your child. But secondly, Christians need not enter a great state of fear here, like, oh, no, what if I do something bad? What if I lose my salvation? If you're a believer, you're not going to lose your salvation because it's not up to you. He that began a good work in you will keep you. He will perform it until the day of Christ. The Lord keeps all of his own. But as Christians, we're called to persevere and to be cautious. So in Hebrews 3, it says, Be careful lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in departing from the living God. See, Satan wants to do that. He puts doubts in your mind. Is this stuff real? Hasn't science shown that the Bible is untrue? He's always planting these thoughts in our mind to try to get us off track. But just trust the Lord. Rest in, in the gospel. The Christian life is not a relay race. Jesus doesn't say, I paid for your past. Now, you better stay right beside me and run this lap in the present. And if you drop the ball, you're off the team. That's not a gospel of grace. That's a gospel of works. If you could lose your salvation by doing something bad, right, then what are you really saying? The only way I stay a Christian is by being good? Do you believe that? As long as I'm a good guy, Jesus will keep me. So we rest in the promises of the gospel. He that began a good work will keep it and perform it until the day of Christ. I belong to Christ. He has given me eternal life. I have been born again. But yet, we have to be careful and prayerful that we won't stumble. Now, with that reality, if you're struggling, talk to someone. Don't just... Continue to allow these fears and, and doubts from Satan to, to trouble your mind until, you, until the devil convinces you, see, it's not real, just leave. It's not your thing. But pray that God will keep us and one another and our children and rest in the gospel and the security of God's promises that everyone he justifies, he'll glorify. So, Jesus is concerned, but he knows he's going to keep these disciples so as he's described this opposition, in verse 6, he says, Now, I'm going to him who sent me. Okay? And then he says, None of you asked me where you're going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. 
I wish I was there right then. And if you didn't go, wait, what? Then either you missed a week or you haven't read the upper room. Or, or you just forgot. Because we got a problem here. Jesus says, none of you asks me where are you going. And I go, what's the problem with that? Well, Pastor Tom, when you were in John 14, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going, Lord. Where are you going? So how can Jesus say, none of you ask me where you're going, when they did ask him where he's going? Did Jesus forget? And so people try to help God out. They're like, well, I'll bet these were two different stories and John patched them together. I'm like, no, I don't think we need to help God out. There are hard verses in the Bible. Whatever Jesus means by this, he doesn't mean, oh, I forgot you asked me where I'm going. There's other ways to explain it. For example, he says, but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asks me. So he might even mean from earlier in the conversation before we left and have been walking, what you knew then compared to what you know now, why aren't you asking me again? Okay? There are other ways to explain it other than, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. But the point is, Jesus says, look, in the midst of all of this teaching about bearing fruit, and now I'm telling you you're going to have opposition, and you're freaking out because I'm leaving. Simmer down. Because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Like their faces are progressively going, uh, uh, uh. Right? Next thing you know, they're going to be in the fetal position. Stop. Don't tell us anything more. And Jesus is like, look, I'm leaving, and this is why I tell you. So that's the coming heat. Now, Jesus is going to go, however, let me give you some good news here. Let me tell you about the Spirit's help. So beginning in verses 7 through 15, he's going to say, look, the Spirit's going to help in this significantly. You're not just going to be down here slugging it out with the world and the devil. It's really helpful and advantageous that I'm leaving. And here's how the Spirit's going to help. Number one, the Spirit's going to help because he's going to bear witness and bring conviction to the world. Look at verse 7. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I didn't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I was thinking about this. You see this in a lot of movies. You know, a husband and wife or some team that's been together and there's some tragic, earth-shattering event, and one of the guys goes, I've got to leave now. And God, we're like, don't go. And he goes, you've got to trust me on this. I just saw a show the other night. You've got to trust me. I'll be back. Kind of like that. Jesus is going, I'm leaving. I know you're scared, but you've got to trust me on this. It's actually better that I go away. But, but it makes sense when you think about it, because Jesus is, is basically saying this. Look, while I'm on the earth, I was guarding and keeping you, and I was bearing witness to the truth, but it was in a very small radius. It's right here in Jerusalem. The Bible doesn't say God so loved Jerusalem. It says God so loved the world. So the God, this message and ministry has to go all over the world. And so it's actually better because I'll go back to the Father and the Spirit's going to come and he's going to help you. Now this passage is not telling us every way he helps us, but it's telling us an important way that he helps us. Verse 8, when he comes... He will convict the world. Now, that's important. Okay? The word convict can have a, a variety of meanings. It sometimes can be translated expose or reveal or convince. But here, it has the idea of pressing home a sense of guilt and responsibility. 
Okay, ladies are like, can you give me an illustration? It would be like hearing your husband say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. You're like, men say that? <laughs> and if they do say it every once in a while, you're like, could you say that into a tape? Could you say that again? Right? The Holy Spirit's work is to convict the world, to expose to them their own personal sin, okay? To awaken within them that they have sinned against God. But it doesn't stop there because he's going to explain three areas that the Spirit's going to convince and expose and open people's eyes to. And these are all part of the gospel. These are things that we can tell people and they're like, huh? But when the Holy Spirit works in their heart, bam, they get it. So look what he's going to do. He's going to convict the world, first of all, concerning sin. And he explains what that means in verse 9, because they don't believe in me. You see, people are going to hell because of sin, not just sins. And the greatest sin, the unforgivable sin, is unbelief. Because the other sins can be forgiven, but if a person persists in their unbelief and refusal to come to Christ, that's going to be their demise. They're going to go to hell because they refuse God's offer for help through Christ. They refuse to believe the gospel. And so I, I have to understand that, that my kids, until they come to Christ, are in unbelief. My neighbors, my friends... And I'm trying to, to alert them and awaken them like you're in danger, but they don't see it unless the Holy Spirit convicts them and they begin to feel a sense of their personal sin. But connected to a sense of their personal sin, he says they'll also, he will convict them concerning judgment. Part of presenting the gospel to people, the news of the Bible, the news about Christ, we have to talk about judgment. Sometimes people leave this out of the gospel. The apostles didn't. In Acts chapter 10, Peter says, Jesus has commanded us to preach to all men that one day God will judge the world through this man he has appointed. Paul said in Acts 17, God has fixed the day in which he will judge the world through this one that he's raised from the dead. So we need to communicate to people that judgment day is coming. Now they don't like that. And that judgment will be through the honorable Lord Jesus Christ alone. And that unless they are repentant and believing in him, they are going to be cast into a place called the lake of fire forever. And so I'm so thankful that I don't have to be the one to convince people of that. I just bear witness of it. But the Holy Spirit presses that truth home. And you know, it's refreshing in a certain way when, when I talk to someone who has fallen under the conviction of sin. And they're starting to feel worried about their salvation and whether they, they're going to go to heaven. And what's it going to be like when I answer to God? And so a lot of people are like, I don't want to think about that. I just don't think about that. I'll just stay busy. But the Spirit of God wants people to think about that. But thirdly, he wants to remind them of righteousness. Verse 10. Because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Now, that could have a lot of meanings, but I think Christ's point is probably this. There's a couple of things concerning righteousness. One, that that's what you need to get to heaven. You've got to have perfect righteousness. Number two, you don't have it on your own. The Bible says there's no one righteous. And number three, Christ offers righteousness from himself freely to those who believe. That's the good news. 
And so I sit with someone, and I want you to imagine this. Imagine saying to your friends, your loved ones, your family, could I share with you from the Bible what the Bible says about how to go to heaven? And they go, yeah, okay. And after you wake up from passing out, they said, okay. And you say, well, we need to talk about what the Bible says. In Romans, God says he created us, but we've sinned. We've broken his laws, and we deserve to go to hell, and there's no good works we can do about that. And one day there's a judgment coming. However, there's really good news. God sent Jesus to die in our place and shed his blood and fully absorb God's wrath and rise from the dead. And he's back in heaven now, and he offers free forgiveness and eternal life to all who repent of their sins, to all who recognize their sin and come in faith and believe in him and accept him and get saved. And I'm so thankful that God says, the Holy Spirit, he'll help you. Jesus says he's going to speak of judgment because the ruler of this world, Satan's has been judged, and so will they. And I've seen people, it's just so exciting. And that's what we need to pray for. It's so exciting when people begin to become aware of sin. Why aren't the churches packed every Sunday with Americans who are, who are trying to find Christ? Because there's no fear of God. There's no conviction of sin. We're trying to heal them over here at Mount Calvary. Oh, you need to get healed by Jesus. And Charles Spurgeon says, they're not wounded at Mount Sinai. They haven't realized the Ten Commandments. The Bible says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so teach your children the Ten Commandments. But then don't tell them, you can do this, guys, and that's how you'll get to heaven. Pray that the Holy Spirit will use the Ten Commandments to awaken within them. Wow, I've sinned against God. What will I do now? And then you tell them the good news. That's why Christ died. And so you don't beat a trembling sinner. You offer him comfort. You offer him hope. You offer him Jesus. But if there's no conviction, they're like, Jesus saved me from what? So thank God the Lord has sent the Spirit to help us in our mission. But not just to bring the world conviction, but also, secondly, to give us revelation and Christ's glorification. And this is where we'll wind down. Jesus says in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. Now, lest, lest we glibly go, so he hands them a New Testament and says, read this after I go, right? There was no New Testament. So when he says, there's many more things I have to say to you, there was further revelation that he was going to give to these apostles and Paul, okay? But, but in seed form, Christ brought the final deposit of God's revelation to planet Earth. Hebrews chapter 1 says, in former times, God spoke in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. Jude says, this Christian faith has been delivered once for all to the saints. But Christ had some further things to amplify to the apostles that they couldn't bear at this point. Just one example. Jesus talked about coming. He talked about the resurrection, but he never talked about what would happen if you're still alive and you're a believer. So the Holy Spirit revealed that to the apostles, and Paul wrote, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we'll all, see, all be changed. So he talked about how living believers will be transformed. So everything we need is right here in this book. All that we need for life and godliness has been revealed by the Spirit to the apostles. This is not his promise to us. This is original promise to give the, the fullness of revelation. When he says to the disciples, he'll guide you into all the truth, he's not talking to you and me. He'll show you whether you should work at the pizza place or go on a missions trip. He's going to give God's revelation because he's not going to speak on his own, but what he hears, he'll speak, and he'll 
disclose to you what is to come. And when he says what is to come here, it's very interesting that the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, John says, Jesus said to him, write the things that are and the things to come. So you don't need to be looking for a newer testament. You don't need to be looking for the latter-day saints with some new revelation to Joseph Smith. Everything we have is here in Scripture, and that's a blessing. The help of the Spirit in giving us God's revelation. But finally, he's also going to enhance Christ's glorification. Notice this. Jesus says in verse 14, He shall glorify me. He will not speak of his own initiative, verse 13. But whatever he hears, he'll speak, and he will disclose you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. So I want to close with this thought, that churches and Christians need to be conscious and thinking about the Holy Spirit, giving him a balanced place in our Christian faith. And there are two extremes. There are some churches that they never talk about the Spirit. A.W. Tozer said the Holy Spirit could leave the church in America and they probably wouldn't even know it for a couple months because we got our programs and our systems and we got it all figured out. No, we don't want to be people who never talk about the Spirit. The Spirit is working in our lives. He leads us. He gifts us. He powerfully works in our hearts and in other hearts. But the other extreme of neglecting the Spirit is when there's too much focus on the Spirit. Everything's about the Spirit, getting slain in the Spirit, holy laughter in the Spirit. Everything's about the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, He will glorify me. So a balanced ministry in the local church acknowledges and seeks for the work of the Holy Spirit, but to glorify Christ. We should be centering on Christ and His gospel. If all of our songs are about the Holy Spirit, if all of our services are manifesting the Spirit, we're like, wait, Jesus said, the Spirit's here to glorify me, like that landscape light. You don't go, pretty lights. You go, look at the building. And so we worship, we exalt Christ. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3. We are the true circumcision who, who worship in the Holy Spirit and we glory in Christ. And so we sing and celebrate and we worship the Lord Jesus and we think often of his death and resurrection and we fix our affections on him and the Spirit's helping us to do that. So we'll close this morning by re being reminded we have a mission and that mission involves opposition. And so I send you today as a witness for Christ. But recognize that we also have help. The Holy Spirit's going to help you. So be praying that the world, that your friends, neighbors, loved ones, family, will come under conviction and that the Holy Spirit will keep showing us our sins so we can confess and, and be cleansed and walk with God. But understand that the Spirit's also given us a full revelation and it's for Christ's glorification. So we ought to think often about Christ. We shouldn't just sing about Christ on Sunday morning. We should be singing about Christ every day. We should be seeking Jesus every day. We should be sharing Jesus every day. It's all about Jesus and the Spirit working in our hearts. So let's thank God together for what he's done. Father, we praise and thank you for the Lord Jesus, that he's the centerpiece of your revelation, that he's the, the Lord of all. And we thank you for our mission. And Lord, I'll be the first one to say, forgive me, Lord, when I lose sight of my mission. 
or I become comfortable and complacent in this welcoming world that wants me to be a chameleon. Father, help us to come out from the world and not sin with them, but to love them, to pray for them, to be engaged with the lost, to be a witness. I pray for the Spirit to fill our people with power and love and boldness and open doors for us to share the gospel. Thank you so much for the fruit you're bearing as we see more and more people and children coming to Christ. May you continue to do that, Lord, convicting the world of sin. Thank you that we're working with you, Lord, and the Holy Spirit is working through us as we share the message of Christ. Lord, thank you for the great comfort that the Spirit is with us. And this week, I pray that we will focus on him and his work in pointing us to Christ. May you continue to give us power, and may you help us to resist the evil one. And I pray even this morning that people might come to the Lord Jesus. If you're here this morning and you feel the conviction of your own sin, the best you know how right now you can flee to Christ. Just say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to be in this world anymore. I want to come to you. I want to be forgiven. I believe that you died for my sins. Would you forgive me? I want to be your follower. And if you prayed that prayer or you want to talk more about it, I'll be here afterward or talk to someone you came with. Father, bless our people, we pray. And thank you so much that Jesus is with us. For it's in his name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Don't forget, first go get your children, then come back and fellowship. <laughs>